His name was Travis. And he would be the first person for whom I would officiate the funeral at the first church I had been appointed to as a student pastor in a small town in far southwest Kansas. But it was the relationship I was able to build with him prior to his death that I still carry with me some 26 years later. And on a deeper pastoral level, I carry with me the impact my mentor had on me at the time, even still today. Travis' family had called me to the hospital as they believed his death was imminent. I went to the hospital and greeted the family and stayed for a while and shared a prayer before I left. I'd never presided over a funeral before. When you start into the ministry and they appoint you to a church before you're finished with your college work and before you go to seminary, they send you to what we affectionately called preacher boot camp. <laughs> it was a two-week intensive course at Baker University of everything you needed to know to be a pastor. <laughs> I remember driving away from the hospital thinking, where, where do I begin? What do I do? How do I start? How do I prepare? I was, well, let's say I was a little more than panicked. Rather than going home, I decided to go to the United Methodist Church in Johnson, Kansas, to talk with my mentor, Paul. <coughs> he was not in the office, so I exited out the back door of the church and across the alley to the parsonage, stood on the front porch and took a deep breath and rang the doorbell. The door opened. Paul greeted me, and I stood on the front porch and wept. I didn't know it. Transfiguration is one of those surreal scenes we find in our text that has been talked about or not in so many ways. Some scholars speak of it and suggest that perhaps it is a post resurrection story that gets inserted into the text pre-resurrection. Mark uses it to signal a change in Jesus' journey. Something's different now. We find it immediately following his gathering with the disciples and asking them that important question. Who do people say that I am? And then the follow-up question to that who do you say I am? Mark is showing them, his audience, who Jesus is in this story. After that story of Caesarea Philippi, of the question of who he is, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop. And while they're there, Jesus meets with Elijah and Moses. Now, whenever I've read this story, I've always wondered exactly how Peter and James and John knew it was Elijah and Moses. But while he is meeting with them, his clothes become dazzling bright. 
the text tells us. He is transformed, transfigured before their eyes. Now while they're standing there watching this, Peter, of course, we all know Peter, has to say something. You ever been there? You've seen something very dramatic, something incredible, maybe something unbelievable happens, and you, you just want to say something, but you don't know exactly how to say it, and maybe you blurt something out anyway. I know I have been. And I blurt it out, and I think, well, wow, that didn't come out like I thought it would. <laughs> That's the category where I put Peter's suggestion here. Jesus, this is so great. Let's just stay here. Let's live here on the mountain. We'll build houses. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Not sure where Peter, James, and John are going to stay. But Jesus doesn't respond to Peter's suggestion. And neither does the voice from the cloud that we can presume is God. The voice simply says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And just like that, everything and everyone is gone, except all that's left is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. That was a moment in time, an incredible moment in time. Peter, James, and John are surely speechless, dumbfounded, well, except for Peter, dumbfounded. But it would be a moment they would carry with them from that moment on. Perhaps for Mark, the dwelling places Peter spoke of were to be analogous or metaphorical. Perhaps those dwelling places were to be in their hearts and minds. That this is the moment that would live with them forever. A mountaintop experience to be sure. You had a mountaintop experience? An experience of seeing a moment that defied description? Tell me about what happened. And after you describe it, just looking at you, that kind of description usually ends up with, well, you just had to be there. What do you do with such a moment? What purpose does it serve? This is another of those places we find Jesus telling the disciples and telling people, now, don't tell anyone. They've just seen him meet with two dead guys. And Jesus' clothing has shined dazzling bright. And on the way down the mountain, Jesus says, now, don't tell anyone. Easy for you to say, Jesus. Think about it, though, about these three. Mark tells this story. Who, who, they've just seen this incredible, indescribable event. Don't tell anyone. Well, he does say don't tell anyone until later. Lodge this experience in your memory. 
burn this image in your memory. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking. What are they talking about? Why are they talking? It doesn't matter. Can you see it? Remember this, I think Jesus is saying. This memory will deepen our relationship, and you're going to need it later. When things get difficult, and they will get difficult, hold on to this image. Hold on to this memory. Let it inspire you when life is too difficult. Let it inspire you when you're ready to give up. Let it inspire you when all seems lost. Let it inspire you when you think it's all over. Let it inspire you when you've lost all hope. This transfiguration for these two, these three, is soul food. It's food for the journey, strength for the journey. I think that's why Jesus told them to wait. You're going to need this later. Use this moment as fuel, as inspiration. Use this relationship to pick you up off the floor when you get knocked down again and again. Carry this image, this memory, this transfiguration, this relationship of love and grace and strength to empower you when it all feels like too much. It is relationship. Images of how much you are loved, images of how much you have loved that transform, transfigure us into participants in the kingdom. Making justice happen. Loving as God loves, being the very reflection of God in the world. I carry with me a great number of relationships that inspire and feed and nurture and challenge and disturb and motivate and give me strength for the journey. You know, that afternoon on uh, my mentor, Paul's front porch, he stepped out of the door and gave me a big hug and we stood there on the porch for just a moment and then we went in the house and I remember sitting on the couch and him sitting in a chair for me. I don't remember a lot about what he said. I just remember that being in Paul Morris's presence that day was food for the journey. Staying connected with him still today is food for the journey. Still inspires me when things get difficult. And when things get difficult, I remember those on my own journey who renew my faith and my walk. On those mornings when, uh, I was just talking to somebody just the other day about this, on those mornings I get up and look in the mirror and and I get so frustrated with, with, the, with the global church, frustrated with the global United Methodist Church, and I, and I think to myself, you know, maybe I'm just done. And then I remember those colleagues, those friends, those families, my partner, who inspire me to continue to get up think of names, Gayla and, and Brad and Nadine and Jim and Mer Medrith and 
Cynthia, my own family, Robert and George and Mel and Trudy. And I think some of those, if they didn't give up, who am I to think I should? And that's just to name a few. What about you? Do you have a name? Tom. Annabelle. Mother. 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 Relationship. Relationship is the very image of God we are told in which we are created. We are created to be in relationship, not with God, but with one another. Our story tells us in Genesis that God said, it is not good that humankind is alone. And we are not. On this Sunday nearest Valentine's Day, you know, depending on who you talk to, when you mention Valentine's Day, you either get a smile or a... Or a grumble. <laughs> or a growl or a frown. And in our church, our community, Chum, we've had a long tradition that predates me by a lot of years. Of celebrating love, celebrating relationships. But for me, when you talk about Valentine's Day in the church, it's not just about the sentimental for lack of more technical terms, mushy love, or the box of chocolates. In the community of faith, it's not that sentimental hearts and chocolates kind of thing, because here it should be everywhere. Love is not an easy thing. Love and relationship is expressed in so many ways in the church, and it's how love should be celebrated in the church, the love that speaks through all kinds of just, right, compassionate, and loving relationships. Friends, partners, spouses, family, self, our relationship with God and the Spirit, that connection we all have immersed. The Rumi, the Rumi quote this morning, I, I love that poem. When Rumi writes, love is the whole. And if we believe God is love, love is the whole and we are but a part. We are a piece. It's about relationship, and those relationships transform and transfigure us and remind us we are not on this journey alone. And it is worthy of celebrating however we experience that relationship and that love and that connection. And so this morning, during the last song, for those of you who wish, I'm just going to stand up here and invite anybody to come up. Singles, couples, married, living together, not married, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles. If you'd like to have a short prayer of blessing and celebration for your relationships. And those relationships we all have that inspire us and pick us up 
when we have fallen, those relationships that help make us better and help make the world better that is around us. Because love is all there is. And it is the way. This is so. Amen. Amen.